Hello, readers. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this is a bookin brought to you by Explore Booksellers, Aspen, Colorado's trusted community bookstore. Wherever you are in the world, it is always good to explore. My guest today is Nikki Mamari. Her new book is Lilith, which is published by our friends at Alcove Press. Nikki, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Jason. It is an honor to have you here, Nikki. And first, before we dive into your book, uh, can you let us know how things are going uh, where you live in your small village in the Chilterns? How have you been <laughs> these past few years of the COVID era? Oh, it was it, it was terrible. Um, we had quite strict. I don't know what what um, lockdowns were like in Colorado. We had quite strict lockdowns here, yeah. so there were long periods where um, you were only allowed to leave the house once a day. You were only allowed to walk within a mile of the house. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, and it's a very small village uh, where I live. It's 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 close to bigger towns, but when we're kind of halfway between London and Oxford, mm-hmm. if you picture that. Mm-hmm. Um, so yes, and it was kind of in that environment actually that I wrote that I wrote Lilith. I wrote it throughout lockdown, and um, I think that sort of enforced isolation and that enforced sort of separation from the real world um, it, it sort of really enabled me to write the book. I'm not sure I could have written it in a in a sort of a normal uh, time period. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, the lockdowns were were not quite that uh, strict here, but. Pretty close, pretty close. But I, I am finding the more writers I talk to um, during this time say, you know, nothing for me changed at all because I just sit in a room and write anyway. It was uh, good to have yeah. the time. Um, well, thank you. I appreciate it. Um, now let's jump into your new novel, Lilith. And first, Nikki, uh, for our listeners who are unaware, who is Lilith? Well, Lilith. Lilith has a fascinating history, actually. She has possibly one of the longest pedigrees in in myth. Mm-hmm. Um, she's probably best known. Sorry, I think if people have heard the name, if those people who have heard of Lilith will have heard of her um, as the, possibly as the first wife of Adam before mm-hmm. there was Eve. Um, they may have heard of her as a sort of a, a demonic figure. She's a demonic figure in, um, in Hebrew myth. Mm-hmm. Um, but actually before that, her story kind of starts... Before that, her story starts in ancient Sumer, um, which is modern day Iraq. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, she she sort of started life um, as, as partly you know, they, the, there's, the, there's the terrifying goddess Lamashtu. Um, there are these night, a sort of species of night demons called Lilithus uh, in ancient Sumer. And mm-hmm. these sort of ideas sort of evolved into the idea of this, this night demon Lilith um who appears later um and she appears in one of the oldest one of the oldest sort of texts um ever written mm-hmm. um in the Gilgamesh epic um and in the preamble to that um there's a bit there's a bit called Inanna and the Hulapu tree um and Inanna the goddess Inanna the divine goddess Inanna has this tree in a divine garden which you you know motifs of which you know we, we, we're going to see later when we come to the mm. bible um but her tree has got three pests in it it has um a a snake um 
and it has the it has what's described as the dark maid Lilith, and this is this night demon who evolved into the Lilith figure, who is more recognisable to us later on. And and she 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 was very much sort of a, a part of cultures in that area, you know, ancient Iraq. All the different types of people living in that part of the world have all inherited a, a sort of a, a tradition of a Lilith type character, and the the sort of recurring themes of this character is that she. Um, she attacks babies and pregnant women. She seduces men, mostly in their sleep, so they can't be blamed for it, of course. Um, and she's often associated with snakes. And all of that will become sort of relevant um, uh, in my novel, which sort of follows the the idea that she's the first wife of Adam. And that that's quite sort of late on in her her canon. Um, that didn't appear, that idea that, that um, Lilith was the first woman didn't appear really till the early medieval period. Um, and she appears sort of in written form. She first appears in a text called um, The Alphabet of Ben Sira. Now she was, this is a satirical text. So it's, it's, it's obviously established before that, um, but that's the first time she, she appears in a written text. Um, and in that text, she is the first wife. She asserts her equality um, to Adam and um, uh, she, he, it's actually because of quite a pornographic story. He wants her to lie beneath him when they have sex and she refuses. That's how she sort of, you know, wants to assert her equality. Um, and she's chucked out of Eden. So she um, she's chucked out of Eden for this sort of uh, outrageous demand that she should be treated uh, equally to Adam. And she becomes this demonic figure who we already know from the sort of the previous myths um, who attacks babies and pregnant women and uh, reappears in many guises sort of in this very seductive role. Um, but the sort of the, the part of the myth that I really wanted to focus on mm. is not so much this demonic aspect of her. Um, rather, I wanted to focus on the fact that she is the first woman. Mm. Because what I really wanted to write about is um, is this side, this this biblical creation myth, which in which we have this sort of very um, misogynistic setup. We have the idea of a male god who creates uh, man in his image. Then he creates woman um, out of man. Um, and we have this scenario where Eve, you know, reaches for wisdom. She um, is punished for it, for this outrageous crime of, of, of sort of wanting knowledge. Um, and the way in which she's punished is, is very sort of sex specific. She is going to suffer uh, agony in childbirth and as will all of her daughters to come. And God also, uh, puts man in charge over. He says, he shall rule over you. So this is this is really what I wanted to write about. And the idea of Lilith as this sort of prior equal woman who's already been sort of chucked out, coming back to cause trouble. That's really what I wanted to write about. I wanted to sort of examine these ideas sort of by through Lilith's eyes. Um, because if you sort of think about what is going on here, um, you know, it is a, you know, this, 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 this story has been used, has just such immense power. It has had power for two and a half thousand years. Um, it has been used in so many ways to justify and to um, enforce male supremacy. It's been cited by 
by people from St. Paul, you know, in the Bible, St. Paul says that he will not permit any man, any woman to have authority over a man uh, because Adam was made first. It was cited by the witch hunters, you know, in early um, in early modern Europe, this idea that because Eve is made from Adam's rib, she is deformed. And because of that, she's she is def she's defective. Um, and these 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 ideas that are in that story, these these sort of um, very damaging sort of uh, ideas about women, that women are, you know, foolish, that women are gullible, that women are unfit to lead, that they, you know, that they, they're untrustworthy. They come from this, this myth. And that's, that's really what I wanted to explore. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, Nikki. Um, I now want to ask you about the poem that you quote at the beginning of this novel, which is by Dante Gabriel Rossetti. Um, in this poem, Lilith is described as a witch. Why a yes. witch? In the Victorian, so Lilith has been through a sort of various, um, uh, you know, over the past 5,000 years, really. She has been mm. sort of, uh, she's meant different things in different times and different places. Um, and each kind of era that sort of, oh, that, that, that sort of refines this myth or, or has something to say about it, mm. has their own way of looking at it. And in the Victorian era, um, she kind of undergoes this transformation. She she becomes this very, very beautiful, very seductive woman. And um, if any of the listeners want to look up Rossetti's um, beautiful painting of Lilith, you know, she is this absolutely beautiful uh, woman. She's, she's sort of engaged, she's looking at herself, you know, admiring her own beauty. She's got this beautiful long auburn hair. And so this idea of, of Lilith as this sort of this femme fatale, this seductress, that is sort of of the Victorian. There are elements of it before, but that's really what the Victorian, what Victorian men focused on, mm. and she kind of represents that. Uh, you know, at that point in 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 time, what she is representing is male fears of the seductive woman. You know, the seductive woman. Um, you know, fears about female sexuality. Um, you know that all comes to the fore in this this Victorian representation, and and you know Rossetti is not the only only uh, the only artist who is inspired uh, by Lilith. You know there there's kind of like an outpouring of of, of fascination. Um, there's the the novel Lilith by George MacDonald, um, which very similarly sort of focuses on Lilith as this sort of dangerous, uh, seductive, um, be very beautiful woman. So it is fascinating this this sort of um, uh, evolution of her, you know, as a character throughout throughout history you know, for, for five thousand years, um, and you know, and that again, that's very different to how she. Many people will think of her today. Mm. You know, today um, in the modern era, you'll you'll find many many more reclamations of Lilith as a you know as a as a um, an empowering um, idea as as a sort of very feminist idea. Um, so I think, you know, that's fascinating to me, these very, very changing approaches to her and responses to her throughout history. Absolutely. And we'll talk about a couple of the um, more modern interpretations later. But first, uh, Nikki, in your novel, Adam is portrayed as someone who is never satisfied. He's always wanting more and is always wanting control over the things that are in front of him. Um, can you talk to us about this 
portrayal of Adam and why you chose to portray him in this way? Why is he never satisfied? Well, he is kind of representing um, the idea of sort of always wanting more, the idea of, of progress. He's not satisfied with mm. what he has. Um, you know, he and um, and Lilith at the beginning of the book, it's 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 Adam and Lilith, not Adam and Eve. Mm. They are together in in this beautiful garden. Um, they have everything that they need, and um, and Adam wants more. He's all he wants to. Um, uh, he he wants to sort of create irrigation for the for the crops. He's got all these ideas, um, but really the big idea, the big idea that he's got um, is this um, invention of the of weapons. So there's a sort of it's kind of like a a, a parody. This sort of the opening part of the book is kind of like a parody of 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 uh, the sort of developments in 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 the Bronze Age, and um, and Adam has discovered. Adam has discovered bronze and um and what he wants to do with this new metal is to create weapons and this is the turning point for his uh, relationship with Lilith and that is a very sort of blunt and crude way really of introducing the idea that things really started to go wrong for women when um when the world became a lot more violent, a lot more aggressive with the invention of, you know, with the arrival of these, these new metals that enabled stronger, harder weapons. Um, and that's when, uh, you know, the power of might becomes uh, more important, you know, in, in ancient history. And, um, you know, that's the point really where things are starting to go wrong for women. Absolutely. Thank you so much for that answer, Nikki. Um, listeners. We are going to take a short break here for a word from our sponsor. Then I will be right back with Nikki Marmory. The Book and Podcast would like to thank Libro.fm audiobooks for their sponsorship. Libro.fm has the same audiobooks at the same prices as their major competitor. You know the name. But instead of supporting the Big River, you'll be supporting your favorite neighborhood bookstores. Please head on over to Libro.fm and enter the promo code BOOKIN, that's B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space to get one free audiobook and support your favorite local independent bookstore, explore booksellers in the process. I'm back with Nikki Marmory, author of Lilith, which is published by our friends at Alcove Press. Nikki, uh, back outside of the world of your novel for a moment, but sort of adjacent to your novel, I told you I was going to um, ask you about a couple of modern interpretations of Lilith. About the time that the advanced reading copy of this novel, Lilith, landed on my desk at Explore Booksellers, a big blockbuster video game came out called Diablo 4. Um, Diablo video games famously take place in a hellish landscape, sometimes in hell itself. Uh, and the idea is that the player walks around battling demons, etc. The big bad boss in this video game is Lilith. And Lilith is on the cover of the game looking very demonic. Um, my questions, Nikki, are one, are you familiar with this game? And whether or not you are. Are you surprised that Lilith has such a hold on popular imagination to be featured in this big blockbuster game? And what do you think of this type of betrayal of Lilith as a big bad demon? 
<laughs> well, I'm not a gamer, so I don't know. I know nothing about gaming, but it doesn't surprise me at all to to hear that she has this uh, starring role. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, I suppose it might surprise you to learn that I think that that's that's wonderful. I think that um, you know I've, I've talked a bit before about the way that Lilith, uh, different people respond to. Um, and it's not even that there's only there's one myth. There are many, many, many different myths from from many cultures, mm. and so people uh, will respond to um, to what you know what connects with them. Um, and I've you know I, in my book I I made the deliberate decision not to not to make my Lilith uh, demonic, and that's because mm. I wanted to explore the first woman element of it, mm. um, and I wanted to get away you know the in the in the myth which is uh, quite misogynistic mm-hmm. the idea is that she's a, she's a demon because she has she she's dared to ask for equality you know she is she's a warning she's a warning to women um you know not not to um breach these norms of of, of womanhood you know how dare you stay in your place and to men she's a warning about the dangerous and destructive power of female sexuality so that's why she acquires those uh, demonic aspects um, in that version of the myth, because of course she always had them in previous versions, um, and I wanted to get away from that. But I think it's wonderful to um, explore, you know, those 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 different aspects. Because I'm assuming that in this um, game, which I, I don't know, she is powerful mm-hmm. and in control, um, and you know that's um, that's another aspect of Lilith. She's she in in you know most of her incarnations you know she is she is powerful um she's feared and um she is in control and that is uh, a brilliant archetype uh for women in my opinion so yes and i think a lot of these very modern these modern um sort of responses to lither do very much focus on this aspect of her the sort of demonic but a kind of reclaimed um demonic aspect so it's you you know most of the time in fact it's often women that are sort of reclaiming uh, Lilith now um, in these new sort of feminist um, guises which I think is wonderful Um, and I think you can I think with myth people can become too attached with like their version of it the thing about myth is there isn't one version you know myths are told for hundreds if not thousands of years before they're ever written down they evolve all the time they cross boundaries they cross cultures they change they evolve they mean you know different different people will have told different versions so there is no there is no original version there is no canon there is just a sort of a a constant ever-changing response to the themes and ideas that that connect with people um so I think uh, you know all of these various aspects of, 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 of Lilith are fascinating and wonderful. Absolutely, thank you. And to um, kind of uh, flesh out a little bit of that answer there, and approaching Lilith from a different pop culture viewpoint, um, folks who are of my generation will remember the traveling music festival Lilith Fair uh, that happened back in the 90s, I believe, the late 90s. Um, are you familiar with this festival and why they chose Lilith as a namesake? I, I know of it. I don't know much about, I mean, I, I could make a sort of a, a, an educated guess as to why they mm-hmm. chose her as a namesake. Um, 
And I'm assuming this is all sort of, uh, was this, how long ago was this? Is this this yeah. was, I believe, in the late 90s or early 2000s. Yeah. And it was an idea, um, it was around the time that um, here in the US, Lollapalooza was a traveling music festival and not an annual event in Chicago mm -hmm. like it is now. And Lilith Fair was a response to that festival, but every uh, band or musician was, um, it was either a female solo artist or a band fronted by a female singer-songwriter. I guess, you know, that that's part of that sort of reclamation of mm -hmm. Lilith as, um, as a figure of empowerment for women, you know, that's part of that sort of feminist um, reclamation of her. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and that's, uh, you know, that, that's, absolutely fantastic um i never got the chance to go to anything like that but that you know that, that sounds wonderful to me um and i think she has this this sort of lure this pull uh, for people um you know she's it's it's such a tremendously attractive idea in many ways um you know for women the idea that she has um you know, rather than than stay in an uncomfortable uh, domestic scenario with with Adam, who who wants to lord it over her, she's she's just left. Mm -hmm. um, you know, she she has argued. You know, she has defied God Himself. Um, uh, you know, and she has left, and you know, lives life the way that she wants to outside this sort of you know this comfortable domesticity, and that's why she appeals so much to 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 women to feminist women um but she i think she has appeal on on so many levels you know that idea of that idea of turning away from everything you know leaving home um because you know you want to you want to be more yourself somewhere else you know that's a very appealing um archetype on many levels as well um and i think that's why she has such wide um such broad appeal why she sort of appears in so many sort of different scenarios and and uh and guises and uh you know festivals um that you've mentioned uh, you know games books you know characters in tv you know youth uh, tv dramas she just has this sort of um recurring appeal um you know and it's different and as i've said you know it's kind of different in every age every age has a has a a, a different response to her yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, Nikki. Um, back into your novel proper here. Uh, a question about Lilith as the first woman. She does refer to herself this way early in your novel, but when she leaves uh, the Garden of Eden in its proximity, she finds that, surprise, there are people everywhere in the world. Um, my question then is, uh, is she really the first woman then? And does she continue to think of herself this way? Well, without giving too much away, um, she, how to put this? <laughs> so the idea that she leaves Eden and she comes into contact with the real world, that's kind of um, part of her progression. It's part of her uh, sort of journey that she has, you know, uh, you know, she started life off in this very, very, it's paradise, but it's not real. You know, the, she mentions, you know, that at the time she didn't notice that, um, you know, they didn't have to sow new seed, you know, the, the crops just grow magically, you know, the trees are in blossom at all times and they have fruit, you know, there is no reality. It is an unreal 
paradise. Mm-hmm. And um, and she leaves this, this place, which is all she's ever known. And when she comes into contact with the real world, she experiences the real world in all its joys and all its difficulties. And uh, one of the moments that she really sort of starts to understand what the real world is, is when she is in a, um, uh, a forest in ancient Alashia. And Alashia is the name, the ancient name for Cyprus. Mm-hmm. And she is sort of for the first time sort of witnessing um, the glorious reality of, of the natural world. You know, she can hear the you know baby chicks calling from the trees. She can hear the water rushing onwards to the sea. Uh, the almond trees are all in blossom. Um, and she starts to fall in love with the real world. And that's kind of her her journey, her journey away from unreality mm. to reality by the end of, of the novel. The idea that she is um, discarding the comfortable um, but unreal scenario in exchange for the difficult but real world. Um, and in a sense, she does still think of herself as the first woman because due to events that transpire throughout the novel, she does end up being a progenitor for um, uh, many, many people. So she does, she does, uh, you know, have this sort of uh, this idea of herself as the first woman in that regard as well. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Nikki. And we'll return in a moment to um, the concept of the real world and what is real. But first, uh, you refer to the Tower of Babel in this novel. Uh, My question for you, Nikki, is first, what is the Tower of Babel, just in case we have listeners who are unaware? And second, why is it bad for everyone in the world to be able to communicate with one another? Um, and I'm hoping that you can use your story to answer this question, maybe via the idea that there was no world outside of the Garden of Eden, for example. Yes, yeah, so as, as as part of my novel, just sort of just to sort of give a brief sort of overview of the structure of the, the novel, because Lilith is immortal. Yes. The time frame of the novel starts in sort of 4004 BC, which is the sort of traditional, um, it was calculated by a sort of theologian that that's the, that's the exact point that the world started. Mm-hmm. So I went with that date and, and it comes up to the present day. So obviously that covers 6,000 years, um, mm-hmm. which is quite an ambitious uh, thing to do. So the novel is sort of split into five distinct parts and each of those parts takes place over one sort of time period. So the gap between some of these parts can be sort of, you know, over a thousand years as you sort of jump from one uh, episode to another. Mm-hmm. So in the second part of the book, after after Lilith has, has left um, Eden, she visits ancient Sumer. Now, the the I won't give away the reason sort of plot-wise. There's a sort of an important reason that she's there. But also it's kind of a nod to... Lilith's or origins in the real world, you know, that that's that's her, that's where she came from, from, from what is now Iraq. Um, and so she goes to ancient Sumer and she um she goes to the very, very ancient uh, city of Uruk, um, where she has some business to attend to. Um, but on the way there, she does uh, she is uh, traveling down um uh, the Euphrates and she uh, passes um the Tower of Babel being built. So in the Bible, the Tower of Babel is a, a story about um, that all the people in the world um, all spoke, or could all communicate with each other. They all spoke the same language and they decided to build this tower to the heavens. Um, 
And it's kind of another story about overreach, about human overreach, humans wanting uh, wanting to reach the skies, wanting to be like God. Mm. It's a story of you know, hubris. Um, and so, you know, the tower is destroyed, the people are all scattered, and from then on, they supposedly speak um, different languages. Mm. So I guess, you know, your, your question, why is it bad that we should all communi communicate with each other, is a good one. I guess it's one of those things. There are so many, there are so many questions like that in the, in the Bible. Mm -hmm. um, and that's kind of what sort of prompted me to want to, to, to write about biblical stories. There are so many, so many things you read in the Bible, but you think, but what, what is wrong with that? You know, just as in fact, you know, the starting point of this novel is what is wrong with, with wanting knowledge? What is wrong with reaching for, for wisdom? Why is that wrong? Mm. Um, and, you know, I'm not sure that there is ever a, a sort of a, 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 a rational answer to that because these myths um and they are you know most of the stories of of um the old testament are myths they often many of them uh sort of also come from Sumer. you know the story of the god the story of the garden eden, eden shares lots of sort of uh, motifs with earlier sumerian myth mm. uh you know the story of the flood noah's flood uh appears in in the epic of gilgamesh so a lot of these stories a lot of these myths do come from sort of uh older traditions and in other places and they've been reinterpreted and as they get reinterpreted they get new meanings which may not have been the original meaning you know the story that ended up in the bible about the garden of eden um has very very different meanings to sort of previous stories of paradise gardens and people uh you know in that scenario from from ancient Sumer. so Often, you know, you 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 if you do look for sort of a, a rational meaning, you'll be frustrated because um that's not how the the, the story evolved. Um uh yeah, so I doubt is it bad for people to to communicate with each other? I don't I don't I don't know. I guess you could you could you you could argue argue it both ways. Um I, yeah, but I'm not sure. I'm not sure it's a sort of a rational. <laughs> I'm not sure it's a rational story that you can sort of get to the bottom of that way. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, Nikki. Um, finally, um, let me ask you: Are you familiar with the film The Matrix? I've seen it. Yes. So I know the. I, I'm. If you ask me to tell you the plot of it. Well, you know, I struggle. A, I remember the basics. <laughs> I, you know, I ask you this because I suspect out of um out of the listener base for this podcast, we surely have a lot of people who are familiar with biblical myth, but we probably have an equal number of people who are more familiar with the matrix. Um so there's a scene in the matrix where um the protagonist of the story neo is asked to choose to eat a blue pill or a red hmm. pill um whether he wants to go down the rabbit hole of knowing what the world really is and eating the red pill or going back to sleep and waking up with the same kind of illusions as before and eating the blue pill so um my question for you is how is eating from the tree of knowledge uh specifically in your book lilith um how is eating the fruit from this tree similar uh, to taking the red pill in the matrix. Well, yes, in my book, there is a very specific meaning to mm -hmm. the fruit of the tree yes. of knowledge. Um, and it will differ from sort of other people's interpretations of it. Mm -hmm. But um, in my book, um, 
the fruit and the tree without giving too much away mm -hmm. the fruits and both trees there's the tree of knowledge and the tree of life that these are gifts from the missing mother mm -hmm. so you have at the beginning of the story you have the father who creates life uh without a mother and that's unusual because uh, you know for thousands of years uh people in this part of the part of the world worshipped a mother goddess um as they did in you know many places um and the the symbols of of uh, mother goddesses in this particular part of the world are a snake um because it regenerates it sheds its skin and uh, regeneration was her her sort of superpower mm -hmm. um the fruit and the tree obviously it's about uh, sort of fertility and and regeneration um so these sort of symbols are all clues as to what is really going on here the the tree you know, and another question, you know, sort of talking about questions that you sort of that come up as you're reading the Bible, mm -hmm. you know, taken at face value, if you do have this omnipotent God, um, why does he have, why is he planted in his garden a tree that you're not allowed to touch? You know, that's mysterious. Someone else who's put it there and why can't he take it away if he's all powerful? Um, so the answer in my book is that these trees belong to the missing mother, the goddess, the wife of God. Um, who has been evicted, who has been sort of evicted from paradise before my story starts. And these are her gifts. And the tree and the fruit, uh, the fruit of this tree are the gifts that she wanted to bestow to mankind. Um, and she has been prevented from doing this by the Father God, who does not want to give these gifts to mankind. You know, he does not want his children reaching for wisdom. He does not want his children to be as gods. You know, that's that's that that comes from the opening chapters of Genesis. Mm. Um, he does not want that, but she does. And um, that's her gift. And the specific sort of format of her um, wisdom that she wants to pass on to her children is very much um, the wisdom of the natural world. It's the wisdom of um, being embedded in nature. It's the wisdom of knowledge of, of regeneration. It's the wisdom of balance. Um, that you know the the, the, the the there must be balance of the of the sexes that, that you know you need two you need male and female to procreate um, they're both necessary they're both important one is not more important than another if you have a scenario where one dominates another you know that's that's you know unhealthy and disastrous um, you know the importance of the natural world as well if you have a scenario you know another thing that happens at the beginning of, of Genesis is that that God puts man in charge of the natural world you know he leads all the animals out to Adam and he asks Adam to name them and that's a sort of a um, to signify that Adam is in control of, of these animals and that you know in a nutshell is kind of a lot of what has gone wrong with you know our relationship with the planet this idea that man is in domination over the planet rather than the much older view which is that the you know people used to think of the earth as the goddess's literal body um this idea that the earth is um is holy that the earth is um that we are part of the earth we come from the earth the earth is 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 the mother you know these are very very ancient ideas that we still see in language you know when you talk about mother earth and um and things like that but you know that for me is a much healthier way of interacting with the world and these are the sort of specific you know this nature-based wisdom 
reality-based wisdom, really, although she's a you know a supernatural being, this reality-based wisdom is what she wanted to pass on to her children, which she was prevented from doing so. Um, and that um and that is what it means in my book. And that's kind of why um, you know, like in The Matrix, Lilith has got to choose between unreality and reality. Um, and she she will, you know, as Neo does, because you'd have no film. You'd have no film if, if they choose unreality. Um, but in fact, actually, that's a major theme of, I don't, I don't know whether you saw Barbie, but that's a major theme of Barbie as well, that mm. Barbie's got to choose between, uh, does she want to carry on in this sort of unreal world? Does she want to choose the the ridiculous stiletto or does she want to choose the the Birkenstock does she want to learn about what the real world is um and that I think is such a sort of it's so obviously embedded in the human psyche that 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 urge to you know what is more important the pleasing the you know the pleasing lie or the the difficult reality um and I think it's something that just comes up again and again and again and it's it's a big it's a big part of my book Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Nikki, and thank you for writing this wonderful novel. Listeners, I've been speaking with Nikki Marmory, author of Lilith, which is published by our friends at Alcove Press. Nikki, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me, Jason. It's a delight to talk to you. Thank you. Once again, I would like to thank Nikki Mamari for joining me. Copies of Lilith can be ordered from www.explorebooksellers.com with free shipping for members of Explore More Plus. I would also like to thank our sponsor, Libro FM Audiobooks. Please navigate over to Libro.fm and enter the promo code BOOKIN, that's B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space to get one free audiobook and support your favorite local independent bookstore in the process. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this has been Bookin'.